Welcome everyone to this month's podcast. This is going to be an amazing podcast. I'm super excited to, to talk about it. The name of this podcast is The Truth About Tantra, Sex, and Relationships with Yoga Rupa Rod Stryker. We're so excited to have him. Let me just tell you a little bit about his background. Um, he is a founder of Para Yoga, the author of The Four Desires, Creating a Life's Purpose, Happiness, Prosperity, and Freedom. He has taught for more than 35 years. He's been around for a while, like me. So we're, we're, we're the guys who are, uh, were back doing it when nobody was doing it, right, Rod? That's true. That is true. <clears throat> Dedicating his life to improving lives through his lectures, writings, creativity, leadership, service, and family life. Clearly, he's one of the leaders in the yoga world. He's been a leader for many, many years. After decades of study, intensive practice, and apprenticeship with internationally around yoga masters, Rod founded Para Yoga to create a resource for time-tested wisdom of the yoga tradition. As part of Para Yoga's master training program, he recently launched, this is very cool, one of the most comprehensive online yoga teacher training programs in the world. So if you're looking to get an online yoga teacher training program, definitely um, stay tuned. Uh, um, <clears throat> he's renowned for his depth of knowledge, practical wisdom, unique ability to transmit the deepest teachings to modern audiences, which is right up our alley, right? It's all about ancient wisdom and modern science. So I think Rod is going to show how he can really translate the ancient wisdom for us, which is going to be great. He's a leading spokesperson for, for living a life of purpose, fulfillment, and freedom on two fronts. Clearly, he practices what he preaches. One, <clears throat> he offers accessible, accessible wisdom and practices to, to wide audiences, those who simply want to live a more joyful and, and joyfully and effectively. He is also a leading authoritative source for experienced students and teachers of yoga and meditation. Rod is a mentor of hundreds of teachers and thousands of students worldwide. Tonight, we'll be discussing the truth about tantra, sex, and relationships. Uh, Rod's website, we'll, we'll, we'll mention this again at the end, is uh, www.paryoga.com. Make it real simple, P-A-R-A, yoga.com. Rod, <clears throat> welcome to this podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. And I want to start, we're going to talk about yoga, tantra, yoga, sex, and relationships. So, and I want to go through those, but I would love if you would take a minute and just tell us all what tantra is. Where does it come from in the yoga tradition? Well, that's a simple question, and I'm going to try and keep it to about one minute. In short, <clears throat> uh, the yoga that we know today, which invariably involves posture and breathing methodologies, and techniques or approaches that are more elaborate or more integrated, um, they are, in essence, they really rise out of the soil of Tantra. So Tantra has, there's really two answers to your question, John. One is there's a, what's called a Tantric period, which existed in India somewhere between the uh, 10th century, so in the 900s, to about the 14th century. We have about a four, 450-year period where that is clearly the demarcation when tantric teachings came very alive. Um, prior to that, it actually existed, but not in textual or scriptural form. So scholars look to, they like concrete evidence, and yeah. they say, that's tantra. But what I was taught, and my own experience and studies have revealed, and really is that tantra existed long time prior to it. It was actually called by a different name. It was called Agama. And the Agama tradition really is even in the pre-Vedic period. So we're talking about almost 4,000 years ago. And you'll actually see those tantric te uh, te 
teachings come alive in, in scriptures called the Upanishads, which was effectively tantric teachings before that tantric period. So you have two answers. The academics like that period, the time period I said, which is roughly 900 to 1400, and the practitioners look to the commonality that was actually already being practiced in much earlier phases of, um, of uh, Vedic wisdom. So like the books, like the original Vedic texts for yoga, like the Garanda Samhita, are those tantric books? Indeed, they are. Okay. And, and I think that's the second half of really the question you were asking, <clears throat> the second, answer, second half of the answer. And that is that what we see is effectively a movement coming forward and really coming forward in the Hatha yoga tradition, mm. where the yogis began to see, or these, we'll see, seers or visionaries began to experience their body as, in a sense, holding the secret to life. We could almost say that they recognized that the body was an altar. Uh, perhaps the most meaningful altar that one could approach. And they began to see that, in a sense, just like on the planet, there are these what we call, um, uh, in Sanskrit, they're called tirthas. They mean crossing points, like sacred sites throughout the world. Maybe Jerusalem is one and Beijing is another and um, Mount Fuji would might be another. And they saw them in their own body. And, um, and they began to develop methodologies, in essence, to do worship at those sites where sacred energy was highly concentrated and could lead to significant revelation and, um, and experience. So that, I'm sorry, so that's, you're right. Your, your question was absolutely right in that yoga, the yoga we know today has its roots in Tantra. And that fundamental philosophy that the body was a, 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 a vehicle to access that sacred energy. So Hatha yoga today really came from a bigger body of knowledge called Tantra. Exactly right. So could you almost say that the body of knowledge of Tantra is, is akin to Veda? I mean, is it that big or is it coming out of the Veda? No, it is in one and, one and the same. They actually run parallel. Um, Vedic knowledge and Tantric knowledge run parallel. There was two fundamental distinctions. The, these ancient teachings went in two directions. And one was the idea of how do we glorify the larger aspect of creation? So not just me, but how do I positively impact the environment? How do I positively impact communities, society? And that was the direction that Veda went into. So much of the ritual around the Vedic tradition was about how to glorify the larger world. What Tantra and what it was called earlier I mentioned, which Agama, it was how do I glorify myself? And the fundamental core of that is it suggests that Unless I'm powerful, I can't be effective no matter what I want to achieve. And so rather than looking at perfecting the outer universe, they look to perfect the inner universe through yoga, through diet, through breath, through sound, mantra, prayer, and those kinds of things. And it began to develop this incredible body of knowledge, John, in which it wasn't just about the, the rigors of hatha yoga or physical yoga, but how do those things, how do we create a kind of alchemy, if you will, around, again, diet. Uh, the earliest, for instance, and this is so why it's so relevant, you and I are speaking, is because the earliest scriptures talk about doshas, the earliest tantric, tantric. yoga scriptures well, that was absolutely my, that, call that was, out the doshas. That was my next question. Is what, two questions. One is, what's the difference between you know, tantra and Ayurveda? And also, um, 
you know, in, Ayur, in India, there was, you know, Ayurveda in the north and Siddha medicine in the south, sort of parallel systems of medicine. Siddha in the south was maybe even more profound than Ayurveda. They did a lot of thinking and writing books in the north, but did a lot of feeling and heart consciousness-based stuff in the south, which is true around the world, really, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, so I'm just fascinated. I hope that everybody who's listening is fascinated by this because... You know, we want to see where, you know, tantras become more like the sex yoga thing. And, and, yeah. and obviously that is such a tiny part, even if anything, about tantra. But I think understanding tantra, what you're saying, is phenomenal. It's, it's, actually, you know, it's actually, you know, a body of knowledge that, that sort of coexisted with Vedic knowledge, one for the world and one for personal gain. Although in Veda there is obviously, you know, much discussion about... And they use the same books. The Veda, we use the Upanishads as well, right? So we're... We're using the same books. Indeed. And, and uh, no, you and I have, we have a similar enthusiasm for this very thing where, I mean, the, you know, we, we could start by defining Tantra in a sense where Tantra is, it's really made up of two words etymologically. So Tan means to expand or stretch and Tra means, it has two meanings. One is it means to protect, but it also means beyond all limitations. So in other words, it's a process or a methodology. Does it mean sound too? Doesn't it mean does, me? does it mean sound too? Tra or no? No, know. that would be. I mean, mantra, for instance, it's the same suffix. Right. But it, uh, man means to think, and tra means to again. It's in context to stretch the mind, to stretch our okay. thinking, while at the same time it's protecting the mind that it's stretching. And in essence, what tantra says, which I think we all can have a practical sense of, which is that it says we're all living under certain limitations, whether those are health limitations, socioeconomic limitations, if you're a little more um, uh, metaphysical in your, in your way of looking at the world, maybe karmic or astrological limitations. What Tantra says is that what you do to expand beyond those limitations is effectively Tantra practice, the practice of Tantra. And because they didn't deny the value of the body, but rather embraced it, as a vehicle or even the necessary passage into the sacred, into the highest we could achieve, they looked at anything that could improve our well-being, that we could honor both our physical well-being, our mental, emotional well-being, and anything we could do to do that would ineffectively, and we did it safely, and then we weren't impairing anyone else's ability to do it, we in fact were doing tantric practice. The other piece, the other piece, though, is tantra means methodology or technique. And one of the things I find compelling about your work, John, is this idea, this integration of ancient wisdom and modern science to validate what these ancient traditions have done. Tantra says that what we do effectively, tantra is methodology or technique, and it says that we need time-tested wisdom. And that's one of the things that I think in our and you're inviting me on to to be part of the broadcast, uh, this podcast, and that is the idea of time-tested is so vital because, unfortunately, Tantra has become this kind of umbrella for, well, my anacronym for what it is today is MSU, which uh, I say stands for making stuff up. And very often what happens is now we hear about uh, the idea of, of, of exalting the body is kind of very appealing, I think, to most of us. The idea that we become, we don't deny our sensuality or even our sexuality, but that sensuality in the body can be a vehicle toward higher experience. But what happens is because there's actually so few authentic teachers 
and so little actual linkage in the in the general kind of there's so little authentic linkage that we can find to those ancient wisdoms and teachings um, people really interpret it they grab a little bit of information here a little bit of information there and really Tantra has become such a muddied concept um, and practically synonymous with the word sex uh, and I and you know you in your introduction you just briefly touched upon that the sexual aspect of Tantra is less than I don't even think it's fair to say it's one one thousandth of the total of tantric wisdom. Um, that period of time where I mentioned those five hundred years where they were collecting, where the books began to really fly, um, uh, be essentially were revealed and more and more knowledge was shared. In that five hundred year period, yes, there was a tiny little fraction of knowledge about how sex could be used for the highest levels of exaltation, but. It, it would be wrong of us to miss the fact that they created thousands and thousands of volumes about diet, about the directions, about architecture, about how to build a shrine, about how to set a table, about how to save money, about how to get you know the right time and the right occasion of the, the right alignment of the stars for marriage. Um, they were actually integrating all of these different bodies of wisdom that they found exalted or brought the most out of whatever we were attempting to do in the world or in our inner world. Uh, so, yeah. I want to get back to this idea that, that sex is one, one hundredth or whatever you said, yeah. not very much. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one of the traditions that I studied talked about that there are different nadis when you go, when you're 17, 18 years old and you're, your, your spiritual process begins to kind of awaken, you start to become more aware, your frontal lobes develop, you become more, your brain starts functioning, that there are certain nadis that carry the, the, the shakti, the kundalini energy. And, uh, and one of them that carries the sex energy is called vajra nadi and vajra nadi, and some of them like, like brahma nadi and chachini nadi, they go from the base of your spine right to the top and they will give you full expansion, full enlightenment, if you will, but full union with the, the subtle and the non-subtle. But the Vajra Nadi is an interesting Nadi, according to them, because it doesn't actually go all the way to the Bindi point on top of that. It only goes to the brain center. So it can actually be something that if you, if you activate that, and that's your road to spiritual progress or process, then you, get, you may get a lot of spiritual power, but it's somewhat of a manipulation and it's like you wake up and the clouds clear and you're on a mountaintop. You think you've conquered the mountain, but when the clouds really clear, there's another mountain about a thousand feet above you and you've never mm -hmm. got there. And so that's where they say it's so important. You know, like in the old days, they would say, hey, to your, you and I still tell my daughter this, you know, all my daughters, I say, you know, make sure that you don't, you know, have sex before marriage or make sure that you're fully, that you understand what love is first, because love will allow your, your, your spiritual energy to find the most direct naughty to the source, to the goal. But if you, you know, start having sp sexual activity at a very young age, you facilitate that Vajra naughty, and that becomes so potentially an addiction, like all of a sudden love and sex are glued together. Mm -hmm. And now we have love and sex and Tantra glued together because <laughs> like, yeah, we already, most people have love and sex glued together and very few. And now we'd add yoga to the mix and we just keep facilitating that nadi, activating these higher centers of the brain that might give you, like you said, some spiritual taste of spiritual mm -hmm. power, which is extremely addicting and very mm -hmm. dangerous in fact. So I want to talk to you about that, about these, about 
you mentioned in some of your some of your work about power and spiritual power and how does tantra relate to that well let's first try and define the the territory a little further because i okay. think for your audience it's important that, that they understand that there were two fundamental schools in tantra there cool. literally thousands of methods thousands of methods different meditation techniques different breathing techniques visualization techniques hundreds and hundreds of mantras as you began to mention, all very similar, unique nadis. These are energy channels within the body. Highly nuanced. So you have to understand it's such an incredibly vast body of knowledge. So complete, John. I don't know if you've heard this, but the, the teaching is that if you wanted to learn it all, it would require 33 lifetimes, which would, would then, of course, require that you would have remember everything from the previous 32. Uh, but the point being that eventually someone thought, we have to categorize all of this knowledge. And fundamentally, they developed two schools. One is what is called the left-handed path. The other is the right-handed. And the left-handed path is essentially where this, the sexual practices of Tantra came from. The left-handed path looks to ritual and highly accel accelerated methodologies to achieve a certain experience. Right. The right-handed path said... That's great. There are ways to manipulate the system. In some ways, you say, okay, I shoot energy in here. I get this certain experience. But the right-handed path said, look, that path can be dangerous if you're not fully mature. Right. Exactly. You can actually activate power. You can activate a, a kind of experience that you don't have the ability to process or assimilate. And that's actually why in some circles, in a lot of tantric circles, and I'm going to put quotes around that version of tantra, Drugs are just a kind of – drugs are part of that whole culture because there's almost no distinction between having an exalted experience and it being fundamentally spiritual or even more importantly, something that one can assimilate and integrate in the whole of their life. So the left-handed path looks to this highly accelerated approach, bypassing all sense of what is uh, – how balanced am I? What's my diet like? What kind of, what's my sleep pattern like? What is my sensitivity to nature like? How are my relationships? What's my overall sense of health and well-being? The right-handed path is let's take our time. Let's practice yoga. Let's develop the breath. Let's look at what the herbs and medicines are that we can do to strengthen our nervous system and mm -hmm. our well-being. That's the This is all right-handed path. Okay. And it's saying it's got to be a gradual process because as you began to describe, you can create a level of awakening. We can manipulate the system through breath, visualization, sound, mantra, even asana, and create this very powerful experience, which ultimately leaves us somewhat bewildered, maybe slightly disoriented, perhaps even more prone to our negative characteristics being more exaggerated and kind of heightening our imbalances, if you will. And so I am a, I'm a teacher of the right-handed path. And in, in essence, that means we use yoga, we use diet, we use, you know, the wisdom of Ayurveda is really the key. And then we use really a progression. So now to get to your question, one of the things I want to make clear in the yoga tradition, in the tantra tradition, there are really two paths within the right-handed path that need to be cultivated at the same time. One is the path of knowledge, the other is the path of power. So... Um, the idea of knowledge is I have to become increasingly aware of myself, my 
the light and positive parts of who I am, as well as the parts of me that are destructive, imbalanced, the habits I maintain despite knowing I should stop them, I continue to do them. And what we want to do is develop the knowledge so we're basically in a place of um, uh, clarity. We've renounced the unwanted parts of ourselves, the destructive or non-constructive parts. So the sex and drugs is on the right-handed path too? No drugs. Absolutely not. But I mean, that's where people tend to... Totally incompatible. The left hand, it says, basically anything goes. So it's the left hand that the sex is, the sex is in. Is that right? I'm, 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 Fundamentally, I I heard... the truth is that the right, as we evolve, we start to borrow from the left, but in a different, in a slightly different way. So let's, let's be really clear. Um, yes, there is some drugs in the left-handed path, but for the most part, John, left-handed teachers are the rarest, authoritative, lineage-based, tradition-based are the rarest teachers in the world. In other words, they don't just show up in Boulder, which would be a, a great audience, and say, or L.A., or New York, or San Francisco. If it's truly an enlightened master, it's, chances are good they're hiding and, and just waiting for the most rare and exceptional student to show them this accelerated path. The right-handed path, even there to find good quality teachers, is, is pretty much the exception. Uh, but... We're not, we don't use the device of sexuality necessary as this enlightenment piece. We're saying let's do it gradually. Mm-hmm. Now, if we have knowledge and power as these two pieces, you can imagine that knowledge without power is ineffectual. Power without knowledge is dangerous. And the right-handed path seeks to really create balanced practitioners, more sensitive to the energy that moves in their body more capable of deep rest and relaxation. That way what happens is as the energy starts building through tantric practices and later even through sexual practices, one can fully assimilate it and essentially embody it as opposed to being so blown out and overwhelmed by it that you can't actually move it into your life in any meaningful way. So um, I I hope that starts to define the terrain and now we can go ahead and begin to answer specifically the questions around the sexual piece and um, uh, um, that you might that you might want to go further into. Well, I think I think that it reminds me. And tell me if I'm accurate here. It reminds me of you know how we are in this culture addicted to a reward chemistry, kind of a dopamine addiction to life. And then I think what you're saying is on the right path. There's a facility to develop subtle energy pathways that can sustain um, an experience of higher states of awareness, even power, without the attachment to the outcome, without being attached to the fruits of your actions. So you actually stay in the sort of the eye of the storm, and you don't find yourself being addicted. Because obviously power is extremely juicy, and you know stories for thousands of years have talked about people getting addicted to power and fame and money. And, and we still have that today. We have a whole entire culture about it being addicted to power and money and fame. But this is a technique which allows you, gives you permission to actually experience the full bouquet of human experience, but not like the Bhagavad Gita says throughout the whole thing, don't be attached to the fruits. The whole book's about fruit. Don't, mm-hmm. don't eat those fruits. I mean, I don't know if Adam and Eve got their thing from there or not, but, but it's really all about how we can not engage in rajasic, which is stimulating our senses to feel satisfied, or tamasic, checking out from the delicate sensitivity, vulnerability, and power of mm. our heart. 
And that, I think, is what you're saying, is that we have the ability to, to access that power, but not for power's sake, because it's the nature of who you truly are. I would, uh, yes, absolutely, 100%, exactly right. That's a correct reading. Of add it. to that. And insightful. And I would add to that only to say, look, I think fundamentally we have to make a distinction between exaltation and integration. It's like the fast burn and the long state of happiness and success over the long term. The right-handed path is much more focused on that. And I will tell you in, in practical terms, anecdotally, the few people, again, who I've seen drift, and it's not a few, but the people I've come into contact with who have stressed this kind of ecstatic offering they say suggest is tantric, you know, again, most of it is made up, frankly. They get a little bit of information. Many of them don't have teachers. What I have found again and again and again is that very few of them are actually happy, hmm. content. Right. Few of them embody contentment. And that their imbalances when they began to explore those methodologies that existed prior to them exploring the methodologies around raising energy, creating exaltation, their emotional and psychological pathologies, if you will, or imbalances have actually grown. They're more imbalanced. And that's why, again, I, I've said it now twice and made this point, but drugs is really prolific in this kind of modern tantra. By the way, for your audience and for those listening to this, Nowhere in the tradition do you find the word Tantra associated to sex. The word was Maithuna. They had a specific word for sexual union. And Maithuna means literally to make two one. So we can oh, nice. imagine it's a process of coupling where the lover and the beloved are no longer separate. Where actually it becomes the loving. The two individuals become part of one thing. That's called Maithuna. And that was the name given to the sexual teachings within the tantric tradition. Nowhere do you see tantra equal sex traditionally. That's a total new, we made that up somewhere along the way. People just hadn't simply had enough research or background or teaching to know that. So uh, touch on, before we leave the drugs thing, I just want to put that thing to rest and, and get a perspective from tantra on the ayahuasca and the hallucinogens, and they're really making a massive comeback around ritual and, and with psilocybin, not even ritual, just these hallucinogens as tools for, and in Colorado, marijuana for that matter. Some people think it's yeah. a spiritual drug. I'd love to hear your take on that from a tantric perspective. Well, let's just say um, I read once that somewhere about a thousand years ago, that the technology for how to use drugs in a spiritual context was destroyed from the Vedic perspective. I can't speak for South America and the Peruvian culture and things like that. Uh, ayahuasca, for example. And, and to what extent ayahuasca is being done traditionally. I'll just say that from the purely tantric point of view, um, that technology was destroyed a thousand years ago because it was being misused. I then took that to my teacher who holds two PhDs, has written 18 books, who is, um, uh, Panaji is, uh, my teacher is a, a line of oldest sons from the 14th century. He's, the oldest son keeps it being the lineage holder. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. And uh, everything he, he's ever said to me, I've actually found, and I found in the scriptures or to be true. He said, that's right, that that knowledge was actually destroyed. There's a couple of things I want to make the case for. Number one, I think, and I know I'm stepping on some toes because people in this day and age take drug use. It's now become plant medicine. 
Um, in essence, we've kind of given it a new title, put a new kind of content into a new context. So despite the fact I'll be stepping on some toes when I say what I'm about to say, uh, the idea is this. We started out when I tried to define Tantra in this conversation saying that they believe that within each of us, there was essentially a map to fulfillment at every level. By using drugs, we're essentially saying that the map is incomplete. That I need certain uh, that I need certain external substances to somehow help the map or help this mosaic of possibility that is my body, and so every time we do a drug, we re-acknowledge or we reaffirm this this belief, this wrong misunderstanding that our body and our mind is not enough. Now it was enough for the Buddha, it was enough enough for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Looking at the clarity in your eyes, I assume that you see and feel in your own being that you are enough. You don't need some external psychoactive stimuli to get there. And so the fundamental belief is that they're incompatible. The spiritual path and drugs are fundamentally incompatible. And the reason that we use drugs is because we're not close enough to that spiritual's vision of who we are. In other words, I don't think anyone in good conscience could call is holy this the Dalai Lama, for example, who meditates about four hours a day and say, you know, your holiness, I know the meditation's going pretty good and everything, but, you know, I've got some weed that could help. Or I have some high, you know, until you do the ayahuasca, you really, it's not going to really pay off. Uh, the fundamental idea is while we're still in this kind of darkness and we haven't tapped into these energy forces in the body, we haven't tapped into this power of knowledge or self-recognition, these things seem like viable alternatives but rod these things like they're like fast like rocket ships to the moon we get to you know it might take 33 lifetimes to experience what you can experience in a weekend with ayahuasca and i think people are having what they may think real spiritual experiences people who who smoke weed have what they consider real spiritual experiences. How, how do you, what do you say to those people? I would tell you that, that they don't have a real understanding of spiritual experience. And that's part of the problem is that if we don't have, if we're not beginning to uh, move towards spiritual experience in a meaningful way, then it's like the old saying of, if you don't know where the destination is, anywhere looks like a good path. So, so what you're saying is then, is that, when you say, I take ayahuasca, I have this incredible spiritual experience spiritually, so that I want to go have that experience again, we've just, we're just reinforcing and facilitating those reward chemistry chemicals that say, I'm spiritual when I have that experience. And the attention becomes completely on the experience as opposed to actually developing that awareness in every single cell of your body, which is a, which is you know what we don't like to do in America anymore is hard work. It takes discipline. It takes practice, right? Yeah, it does. And uh, and and beyond that, we also have to understand that we, you and I have been using this this term spiritual experience really since the beginning of the call our conversation. Uh, the point is that from the ancient view, the ultimate experience spiritual experience was not a, an experience that was better. It was an experience that was beyond. In other words, just because it felt great or just because you experienced a kind of momentary objectification of all your worries and all your fears 
for a glimpse. You got a glimpse of all of that stuff being very small and you were free. Ultimately, the spiritual experiences defined by the yoga and tantric traditions is singular. In other words, it has no comparison. It's non-dual. At that point, you're no longer comparing your present experience to the bad experience you had before you were high. The revelation of it, you know, this is why the Buddhists call it emptiness. Now, that may not sound attractive to a lot of people. It certainly didn't to me, and to some extent, that's why I lead into Tantra. But the point is, it's beyond all comprehension, including the kind of experience people are having on drugs or even exalted sexual activity or sex, sexual union. The spiritual experience is actually beyond all qualities. It can't be defined. And so there is, it's a false equivalent to say, just because I feel ecstatic, that's spiritual experience. No, that's called, ex- that's called ecstasy. That's not spiritual experience. And that's, that's the tricky part. And you're right to put it in context, John, to say, well, you know, it takes work and it's a process. But what I would say is that it's a, it's a process that ultimately lends itself to being experiencing integration at all levels. Again, I've met so many people who've, for all these reasons that you've already touched on, is we have this, we want it to happen. We want it to happen quickly. But they're fundamentally not happy. They're struggling in their relationships. Or go ahead. So explain to me, I, and, and I think people are getting the idea that, you know, if we shoot for the moon, you know, you know eventually you're going to run out of oxygen. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be a sustainable experience. And I think people are starting to get that. But tell me a little bit about, give me, some, give me some carrots along the way of the tantric tradition that does require diet and lifestyle, nutrition, yoga. It doesn't sound so arduous. It doesn't sound so, so, so intensive where it's going to take years and years to get a little tiny glimpse of that union. And I, and I think that, and I, I wanted to, as you were saying, I, was, I, I, am, I have a couple of articles coming out about, about this word mindfulness which I think mm-hmm. is the most ridiculous word in the world when you think about it, because the last thing you want to do if you want to be empty is to engage in practice that give you mindfulness, right? Isn't that the exact opposite of where we really want to go? Mm-hmm. So you want some carrots? Yeah, give me some carrots. <laughs> well, uh, you know, honestly, uh, I would tell you that if I didn't get a few carrots along the way, I, I no, one, no one would have said 35 years later, you you're actually, you finally make a little progress. Right. So we need to hear these carrots, make them big ones. The reality is that when we bring tantric wisdom into our yoga practice, for example, it's not just a question of feeling like, oh, I'm temporarily de-stressed. There is this, this tantric approach, which really what is what my teachers gave me and was the basis of what I created when I developed our yoga is there's immediately a sense of wholeness. And I know that may not be the most sexy word to people, but when you start to feel a quality of wholeness, when you start to feel a quality of empowerment, what was very intriguing to me when I first met my teachers was they were very curious about the quality of my life, not the quality of my practice, not what I was doing outside of, not what I was doing on the mat and not what my experience was on the meditation cushion. And when I began to combine my yoga practice, my yoga practice integrated more understanding of the energy systems, more understanding of the, the power of sequencing, the power of um, Agni, the, uh, uh, not just digestive power, but right. your mental process, your, your ability to assimilate your own shortcomings 
And I began to see my life. One, confidence was increasing. Inspiration was increasing. Motivation was increasing. I actually found myself becoming more outward and more creative and more empowered and, more, and, and, and less fearful, frankly. So it really is taking what a lot of people know of as yoga and adding additional elements. Now, the more it can, can be combined you know, through the guidance of a teacher or a tradition – through diet, through these other things, you just simply, listen, uh, you know, we can say what we can say about, we can get very esoteric, John, and uh, we still have time to get esoteric if we want to. But listen, sleeping well, a good night's sleep, I mean, are the few few things that are more incredible, not just during the process, but when you wake up and the after effect of that. And, but moreover, so I really want to paint this picture where reward starts to happen very quickly. And uh, the truth is that our mind, we have so little understanding about the power of our mind, not just to get it quiet and feel a temporary moment of less stress, but ultimately to begin to infuse our whole life with possibility and enthusiasm and vitality. Um, and so those things are accessible and you don't need to be super advanced to start to do them. So you what you're know. saying is that the true and greatest measure of success is not experience with your eyes closed or on the mat, it's the, it's the experience of your life with your eyes open. Are mm-hmm. you content? Are you joyful? You know, are good things happening to you? Are you going sort of downstream with the current in your life? You don't feel like you're paddling against the current every single day, exhausted, on the weekends recovering. All of a sudden you feel like you're, you're flowing down, you know, in a way that life becomes more effortless, which allows the river in experienced life to become more still, which allows you to become more aware, which allows you to be able to see what mental, emotional patterns of behavior you may have engaged in as a child that you're still projecting on the screen today as an adult, and gives you the ability to take transformational action to free those. And that, like you said in the beginning, I call it the game of life, and you call it, what did you call it? You know, it's, a, it's something about it being, a, you know, a, a joyful experience like this whole thing is a it's a you said at the very beginning it's a it's a the whole point of tantra is just kind of this play that we get to use the awareness that we get to make transformational action and free ourselves in a way where we can truly simply be content and the experiences along the way can be extremely distractive and they can be extremely you can go down that road and now people are using ayahuasca and and drugs to sort of facilitate this spiritual experience. And like you said, so many of them are, are truly unhappy. And that's a really dangerous road to hoe when you think it about is, it. It is, unfortunately. It is, unfortunately. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure there's some people who are using it and they don't, they're not having some significantly de- debilitating experiences. But yeah. literally there are now even suicides beginning to come into, you know, collective awareness that people who are using it for depression and again, kind of just this ad hoc kind of grabbing a little bit of information here and there. I mean, what I would again offer to your audience along this line is what would we, how long does an orgasm last since we're back to the sex part? Think yeah, about, let's talk about sex. Yeah. Think about the ecstasy of, of an orgasm. How long does that normally last? What about, what about the joy and the significance of a really fulfilling relationship? How long does that last? And it's not to say that orgasm can't be a glimpse into something significant and that there may be, indeed, through Tantra, there are methodologies to begin to create a quality of similar kind of opening and possibility and exaltation. There is a possibility of doing that energetically. But as you were just speaking about, you were talking about alignment. We live 
surrounded by intelligence. Nature is inherently intelligent. And what we want to do, as you, and really it's heart and soul of Ayurveda, of course, is to be aligned with Dharma. You do be aligned with this intelligence of which we're a part. If in our search for ecstasy, we're actually going against the Dharma, there's no way that ecstasy can be more expanded than in the moment. So let's just give you, so, so one of the things that tantric masters recognized is there was this energetic map. In essence, when we think about it, when, when we are in a place of balance and, and, or enthusiasm and power and uh, spontaneity, prana is flowing differently than if we're in a place of depression or sadness or self-criticism even. And what they began to do through their vision, probably somewhat similarly to the vision of the Taoists who could see, eventually just see the meridian system in which we then have our acupuncture developed from, but they basically saw what energy looked like when we were in a state of awakening, when we were alert to this intelligence. They saw what it looked like, and then they began to develop methodologies to create a, an alignment or kind of mimic that kind of energetic condition. And that's how the asanas came to be, pranayama came to be, the bandhas, mudras, uh, whether they're hand mudras or breath retentions or locks. And there's also methodologies then that if one were to be uh, with someone, you're in partnership with someone, and I'm, I'm even not going to say male and female, although that's kind of a traditional point of view that it's a man and a woman, but we'll say someone is occupying the feminine role and someone's occupying a masculine role. There are actually methodologies to track the way energy would move to create that condition I mentioned earlier, where it's not two separate beings, but one being, one pulse of the heart, together. Yeah. And they began to draw those methodologies out and, and codify them, frankly. So if we could then think, you know, how do these practices, why it's not 35 year long haul before anything significant happens, is in essence, if you're taught properly, you see that asana and pranayama and the yoga that we do is effectively a preparation and a mimicking of what you eventually achieve through these kind of ecstatic experiences regard to what the tantrics were also saying you could achieve through sex. So it's very difficult. And in our culture, people meet each other, hook up, you know, within, oftentimes within hours, they're in the bedroom. Yeah. You know? And um, then you activate this ecstasy, naughty, this vajra naughty, and you're like, all of a sudden, my relationship with you is love through sex, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, what, maybe this is too big of a question, but what would you suggest in a relationship, you meet someone new, you really care about them, there's a lot of sexual energy there, and, you know, there is the risk for that energy to be just sort of, you know, you know, like a, you know, a series of fireworks, and then it's over, and then, you, you, then it's like the road less traveled, is a little bit challenging, so we don't go down that road. We just go to the next firework display. How well, do we? Is there like a is there like a rule we can say? All right, two weeks no sex. Or <laughs> like I had a patient of mine who who was uh, buried, had sex right away, got divorced, mm -hmm. got reconnected with this person again, didn't have sex for like six months after they got remarried, mm -hmm. and now they're they're life partners. It's a beautiful thing. 
And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I love these, these cuddle clubs that they have now, these cuddle groups where you have a relation, there's a, there's a, there's a monitor, and, and you get to be with someone, even a stranger, but there's no sex, it's just touching, and you get petted and cared for. I think with someone you know, it might even be a great strategy to say, hey, you know what, we're going to have, you know, I'm going to rub your feet, I'm going to massage you, and you get into this way of loving them without letting yourself go all the way. And I yeah. think somehow that develops this, this building of love as opposed to just it, all, all, all that love just gets completely blasted into the firework display. And then I want another firework display to reinforce the love. So yeah. talk to me. Is there anything well, you can you know, add? What you're describing already sounds pretty tantric. These, the yeah. idea actually, that, that actually is holding it. You know, this is, again, why the steadiness that yoga practice provides and the calmness and the balance is so right. valuable because it's this idea of can you actually sustain it? Um, one of the things that one of the directions some of my work is going in, I'm actually going to do, I'm writing a book about a relationship specifically around this idea. And, you know, the thing that you described is this, what I call it, it's a, the three phases of relationship are me, you, and us. And initially, from the tantric point of view, is all it is is me. Right. I, it doesn't matter if I'm holding someone else or we're having the most wonderful sex in the world, better sex than ever. It's all about you. It has nothing to do with the other person. Fundamentally, all you're feeling is your own uh, your endocrine system, your nervous system, maybe some noddies opened up because of just the right condition. And there's a psychological piece, John, that fundamentally, look, the, the spiritual traditions say that the unfolding of ananda, which is bliss, um, that's the result of not wanting anything. The moment I stop wanting, I start immediately feeling who I and what I am. So if I, if I, the, the way you and I usually, or most people usually experience not wanting is when they get something new. So a new lover, great. Well, I don't want a lover because right now I have the new lover. Right. Now, the ecstasy is not the lover. The ecstasy is you not wanting anything. For that brief, whatever that is, five minutes, half an hour, hour, or even in that stage, there in the early relationship, there's fundamentally now you're no longer wanting. And what are you experiencing? You're not experiencing them at all. You're totally experiencing your own body of Ananda, your own inherent bliss body. So the short answer, and then as I said, it, it's what you were just even describing was so right on in that sense of one is to just be in the sense of as early as possible, step outside of yourself and begin to feel who we are. Not who they are. Wait, wait. We went from you went from you did me. Now yeah. we need to do them uh, before we go the, to we. You the you is yeah. the you is the part, and this is just the natural progression of relationship. The natural progression of relationship is that they, despite how great the sex is or whatever the newness is that makes you happy, so ecstatic, they're going to disappoint you, and um, moreover, you're going to find out how they deal with your disappointment. And they may not deal with your disappointment in a way that actually suits you very well. Right. They might. But it's only after you begin to be disappointed do you figure out who that you're starting to see them for the first time. That is like the moment of the Wizard of Oz when Toto pulled the curtain back. Uh, that moment now, you're actually starting to see, wait, this person has flaws. This person doesn't always listen to me. The person doesn't show up on time. Not really fully, doesn't have all this integrity that I thought they had. Doesn't fulfill what they said they were going to do. No matter how great the sex is, now you're actually experiencing them. 
And the, what I, what I, the advice I give to people is you need to go through at least three or four or five disagreements before and see how they deal with disagreements before you really even know who they are. So, but that, and then the final stage is if you actually discover them, you discover this is a person who deals with conflict well, not only is it, not only is the good part good, but these challenging parts, they actually have some decent skills and are human enough to step into apology or humility or whatever it is, or to reach out to you in your moments of stress, then you can make a conscious decision in relationship to serve who you are together. What is, what do the two of us make together? And that's, this is this line I took earlier in our discussion, which is neither the lover nor the beloved be, be the loving. And that, that's straight out of the Kulanarva Tantra. It's one of the great, great, meaningful spiritual te- uh, tantric texts. In essence, you, as your aim in relationship is to step into this loving thing where you are actually serving the sum of you. And ideally, the sum of you is greater than your individual parts. It doesn't mean that, the you, that, the, that I am lost, nor is the person lost. You coexist, and yet together there's this third entity. But when you ask me about the early part of relationship and how do you avoid that kind of getting swept away in the delusion that this is the perfect situation, as, first of all, walk into it with the clarity that there is no perfect situation. Number two, the ecstasy you're feeling is you. It's coming from you. That's good news, by the way, because you can contact that in meditation. You can contact that feeling of well-being anytime your mind gets quiet. If you understand that's what's going on in Shavasana in your yoga class, just rest in that. Become less dependent. One of my favorite, there's a, there's a power that comes out of discovering your, your own bliss. It's called in the, in the yoga tra- in tantric tradition, it's called uh, Ananda Shakti, the power of bliss. And what they actually suggest is that through the power of bliss, it makes us more independent, less needy. In other words, if I have the feeling that I don't need anyone to be more, to be whole, and that's not an idea, but that's a living experience, I'm no longer dependent on someone being in my life in just the right way for me to be happy and to me, for me to have a sense of self-value and self-worth. If you have that, my gosh, there's so much freedom that comes out of that. Um, so all I was saying is go into any kind of relationship and I, and you and I are in the same, I don't know if we're just old school, John or what, but this idea of don't have sex right away. And I, and, and, you know, we could probably have a conversation around this and I don't want to sound chauvinistic, but there, I think particularly for women, it's particularly challenging if that sex happens too early mm-hmm. and it's so much, it, it, it so deludes the ground and your ability. And this is true for men too, but our ability to really see that person. And understand that we can't get to we until I've seen you, until I've seen the other. And if sex happens too quickly, chances are we will never see the other, clearly. We have to really take evidence. And that's why I say, you know, relationships are an interview for about a year and a half. It's a job interview. I always say that we have to go from needing love to being love. And I think that's what you're describing is that, you know, it's, you know, and then we have the hard wire which is that we're hardwired to want everyone to like us, approve of us, to care for us as a child. We continue to project that need of love and reward chemistry on the screen as adults, and that becomes a problem. We have a relationship. I want them to like me. 
you know, so we have this experience of sex um, that, you know, creates this huge reward for me, like you said. And in the, in the Bhagavad Gita, there's a chapter, chapter 2, verse 44, it talks about, which I think is the, and I'm interested to hear your take on this from the, from the tantric perspective, because in my mind, it defines all Veda. And it's when Krishna was helping Arjuna figure out whether he should you know, kill all of his cousins because they had stole the, the kingdom and were going to take the whole kingdom down a very terrible road. And he would have to, you know, to save the kingdom, kill his own cousins, kids he grew up with. Right. And Krishna said to him, in, Arjuna was sort of like freaking out. Um, I wasn't there, so I'm not exactly sure how it went down. But, but or Krishna said, yoga sta kuru kamani, which means establish being and then perform action. And we do a lot of things in our Western world of yoga, meditation, breathing to establish more being and more awareness. But very little is discussed on actually performing action. There's an aspect of the Veda called Donnerved, when you pull back the bow. That's the awareness. You look at the target. And if it's moving out here, this is going to be a terrible non-transformational shot. But if you're perfectly established in being in science and then you shoot, you're shooting from that place of deep silence. So... What I always try to teach people is there are action steps that have to be engaged to lay down neural pavement in your brain to free yourself from the old patterns you created as a young child to feel safe and secure. So in these relationships, I always say action steps are sort of like you have to evaluate what it is about that person that makes you feel safe enough to let the delicate petals of your flower open and you be yourself. But then you must act on that in a way which is expressing the love, expressing joy, to lay down pavement, because your brain's got this pavement that says, hold on for dear life, because they might not love you, they may hurt you and stab you in the back, so protect, protect, armor up. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious if Tantra talked about, you know, the, 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 obviously the silence and the awareness part, but the action piece seems to be sort of, it's one of my pet peeves, it's like, it's just missing what mm-hmm. action steps that we really need to take to transform ourselves from needing love to being love. Yeah, it's, it's beautifully said, John. I mean, it's such a vital point. You, you said you, for your, it might almost be the quintessence of the Veda, Vedic wisdom. And that's common, you know, whether it's Vedic wisdom or Tantric wisdom, it really is critical. And um, that, that, in all honesty, back uh, some, when I published my first book, my agent at the time said, why are you doing this? This is a book about the world. Why don't you write a more complex, esoteric book about tantric yoga science and I said well you know because yogis don't understand that it's when you have that experience it's about starting to translate it out into the flow of your life and um, it's exactly it's exactly that sentiment is that yes yoga does in fact prepare us but really it's what we do afterwards in fact one of the things I take from the Gita it's almost as though you do yoga in order to do to know what to do when you're not doing yoga right you know, you, you, you practice, you get silent. We do these practices in order to make really good decisions uh, when we're not doing yoga. So there, uh, there should be like, when you meet this person, you don't want to jump in the bed right away because, you know, that's sort of going to be the firework thing. So that's the point where it requires you to take action, all mm-hmm. kinds of actions based on the true nature of you, which is loving and joyful and kind and compassionate and, and aware. And that's and I and I and I wonder if Tantra you know talks about that like you know like you know random acts of kindness showering them with love not sex and 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 watch how that makes you feel 
completely filled up. It's like the, the, it's the, the sun just gives light, doesn't get anything in return. Our nature is to give, it's, not, it's to expand. And when we do that, somehow, you know, you, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the needing love becomes sort of being love. And you're like, I'm, I'm, like you said, I'm, I'm feeling that wholeness. I'm feeling mm-hmm. content. I'm feeling content by actually engaging in behavior that's not about me. I think, I think again, it, it really, to me, it just keeps pointing back. And that's why, frankly, the right-handed path, I said, does include elements of the left-handed. It's not like as though those, some of those more unorthodox methodologies are not discluded. But it says preparation is really vital. In order for, for someone to have the level of clarity, I mean, the level of, of choice that you're describing as being ideal, and, I, and I'm totally in alignment with you, we have to have a certain sense of being at home in our own body. Yeah. That's why I loop back to the diet and all those kinds of other things. But once we have that balance, really what I would offer the listener in, in terms of the simplest thing is feel who, you, who, who we are. In other words, especially if someone is dating and maybe more than one person or has been through a phase in their life where they were with someone else previously, rather than rushing to try and find it, uh, sensual fulfillment with that person is to literally just and not be in your intellect about it but just to feel the space the two of you create together un, in, almost in an unspoken way now that's hard because as you're talking about hormones start to move and the rush and looking for certain rewards starts to happen but the, and that's why the stability piece is so vital um, uh, indeed that's why the Gita, this maybe the most seminal Vedic text of all, it takes place on a battlefield because these things, we are in effect living different battles all the time. Okay. Battles with our habits, battles with our beliefs, battles with our expectations, battle with our disharmony, you know, the disharmony that's in us. So, but the more we can, you know, what I, you know, ultimately, you look, again, just trying to fulfill the topic, the title of our conversation today, the sex piece is, there is a certain element of holding that place of tension. Even in the coupling that goes on in that ritual, it is holding the tension rather than looking for something to happen and make something happen that's ec- ec- ecstatic. It's holding the tension where you realize the state of ecstasy is, con- is a constant. This is the great revelation of Tantra and the, where the, the very direction that methodologies go is that I'm going to say something radical, John, in the midst of the world that you and I live in, and I'm not unrealistic, and I'm not ill-informed. Um, the world, life is essentially precious. Life is a gift. And we so often lose that in the, in the disharmony, in the chaos we see. But the tantric's revelation, not their wish, but what Shankara, who is like one of the first and most notable tantric practitioners, says, is that life is a gift. And, the, and then he goes on to say life is beautiful because it is a manifestation of the most beautiful one. And, and then he goes on to say, I am part of that beauty. So these are not, it's not a kind of wish of the way we'd like, like it to be. It's revelation. And so as we get quieter and we hold this kind of tension of not rushing into anything, but just holding that stability that you talked about when you're talking about the bow, more and more of that inherent beauty and the gift that life is becomes more obvious to us. Slowly but slowly begins to come through these little cracks that we hopefully are creating through the softening in our practice, in our philosophy of life, 
you know, our brace of our diet and, and, you know, listening to the ancient wisdom, indeed. In the meantime, while someone listening, I don't want them to, I don't know if, I, I, don't, I don't want them to go away thinking, this is impossible for me. Let's say someone has a relationship and the, you know, the passion takes over and they do, you know, end up having sex and weren't able to hold that space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a deal breaker, is it? Not at all. Good. Not at all. No. So, so, so if that happens, are there, you know, let's say, and many people are already in relationships that are, that are, you know, you, you make up with sex and you, 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 you feed the relationship with sex and, and the, a lot of relationships are built around sex for a lot of people. Um, is there, is there a way for them, some, some insight you can give them to take what they already have in place, which is a, a relationship that's, that's, that's fulfilled in a lot, in, in many ways, by sex and hopefully other things too. Are there things that they can do now, some techniques you can give them to, um, to sort of rework that and make it a more full experience. So it's not just love is sex, and that's how we have love in our life. Mm. Well, there are certainly our methodologies. I, I, I kind of want to just touch on one thing really quickly, and then let me answer your question, because you, 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 I think, accurately portrayed a bunch of very practical scenarios about people's relationship and the, val- and the kind of possibility of evolving around sex. It's possible that it's not fulfilling, or it is fulfilling, or it's shorter, or not the way people would love it. It's not as loving as they would like it or it's not as risky as they would want it. You know, there's all sorts of possibilities. Everything. But there's another, which is that that um, that one partner is moving toward a, quali- a kind of an expansion of their own awareness and their own aspirational, um, you know, the direction of their life and maybe someone who's listening to us speak today. And they're with, a, with someone who's not so interested in those things. And they have not evolved at the same rate. And that, that also is a challenge that I think is very real. Um, and especially so, as so many people are doing yoga, they don't necessarily bring their partners with them. So what I would say is that, first of all, the very act of lying next to a body gives you an opportunity that the person you're with may not feel safe or may not feel prepared to share the level of intimacy that we're saying is possible through some of these methodologies. You may not even get them to partner in them doing these techniques, even if it sounds adventurous and cool, they're just in different places. But the very opportunity of lying next to them, and what I would ask people to do is make that a moment of conscious expansion, becoming more aware. And there's a way, there's actually, depending on how it's being done, but the basic theme of it would would change depending on uh, the nature of how much participation you get from your partner. But the basic idea would be that in some ways you would feel as though that when you, each time you inhaled, as though you pulled the best, the very best of yourself to your own heart. And each time you exhale, you would expand what you felt in your own heart as love and tenderness and wisdom and kindness and generosity. And you would embrace, it would embrace the two of you. And this is just becomes like almost like a magnetic feeling of a, of a, of a non-material, non-physical embrace. It's like as though you are both being uh, nurtured and healed by it, but at the same time, you're offering it to the partner. And what a lot of people have actually said to me in doing this kind of methodology is their partnership began to change. Even if you just do this for five minutes before you go to sleep, unbeknownst to your partner. Now, if you could, if you could before sex, either take a few moments to sit eye to eye with each other and have that same, apply the same methodology 
where in essence each inhale the partner's taking it into their heart, the love from the other, and each exhale sharing it back to the partner. And as I said, that can be done with a partner consciously, or you can do it consciously without your partner's knowledge. And yet there is a transference of expansion and possibility. You know, there's, there's science behind what you actually said. Really? There really? was a study done where they actually had people give in two different ways. One was called hedonistic giving, where you give love a partner, but like you said at the beginning, I, I want them to like it. I want them to think I give good sex or whatever. Or I give them a present. I want them to like the present I give them. Then they gave, another group gave what's called eudaimonically, where I don't care if you like the gift. I'm giving because it fills me up and gives me joy to give it to you. When they gave hedonistically with a little bit of attachment to the outcome, it had no effect epigenetically. But when they actually gave without concern of the outcome, just because it filled them up, it literally changed their genetic code. It's powerful. And just what you're saying, they don't need to know it. You're giving this thing because it's you doing you. And mm-hmm. when you're doing you, you're accessing the, the best of you. And they will feel it on a subtle level. And like you said, it will change relationships. You've experienced, you've experienced it. And there's some pretty interesting, very cool science to back that up. Love so I love that. Thank you so much it. for, sure. for sure. sharing that. Because and, I think people just, need and, a technique, you know? I'll just really quickly add one thing. If you're, by the end of that, you should feel elevated. Yeah. If you don't, it means you're doing it conditionally. Right. Right. You're doing it what they call hedonistic. You're doing it with an outcome. You're doing right. it in that hedonistic way. Yeah. It's exactly consistent with the science and what you're describing. Yeah. Wow. How beautiful. How beautiful. Um, I want to sort of wrap up here a little sure. bit, and I would love for you to you know, take a minute, and if there's anything else that you feel that we all need to hear based on your work, um, you know, please do that, and also tell us what your latest work is and how people can find you uh, on your website, and um, yeah, sum it up for us. Well, I would just offer this, and we are living in challenging times, and I, I do want to just go back to something I stated earlier about this orientation, this tantric orientation, and that is that we really, it's really important that we're all as strong and as healthy as we can possibly be. It's not just a plug for you, what you do, and it's not just a plug for what I do, but I think this is ultimately so vital um, that we, in essence, really, it's, it's, it, it's in our nature, it's really part of who we are, that we want happiness and health and success. And what I would do is just offer that you, we all need to honor that. And, you know, use, we live in an extraordinary age, uh, there are a lot of resources, just find the best. Find the ones that are time, in fact, linked to time-tested wisdom because we know that they work. Um, and so I would just simply offer that, that the methodologies that I provide in Para Yoga are really about how you strengthen yourself completely. Now, does that self, I would call that enlightened self-interest, that we take care of ourselves. The effect of that, and the, and the Vedas actually, one of our favorite Upanishad is the Katha Upanishad, and it says that by serving your highest interest, the, great, the highest interest of all is benefited. And so it's the idea of, yes, it may sound like self-seeking, but in fact, it, it heals and it balances and affects all of nature. And from that, you will then be driven to be more generous, more charitable, more, not, more self-aware and spontaneous and um, ideally thrive in every aspect of life. And, you know, indeed, thank you for uh, offering me the opportunity just to, you know, direct people to Par Yoga. I have about 70 different classes and breathing practices and meditation and yoga nidra. We didn't talk about that today. One of the great healing modalities of yoga and the tantric tradition. 
Um, all of those they can find at my website. Um, and then, uh, indeed, you mentioned this uh, uh, online teacher training program. It is the most comprehensive one in the world. You can do it in segments. And uh, But I really started from the very base, the foundation of Sankhya philosophy, and uh, teach people how to sequence and really develop a real understanding of what is the possibility of this thing called yoga and seen from this tantric vision. So um, uh, Par Yoga is how people can find me, and if they have any further questions, I'm happy to answer them for them. There's an old saying, Rod, that is, I love you, Rod, but it's no concern of yours. <laughs> Which means I love you, but I don't really need you to do anything with that because it fills us up to just exactly what you said. You know, we don't need anything to happen on the outcome. I love you, but it's no concern of yours. A great model for how we can engage in relationships. Um, Anyway, I want to thank you so much for joining me. I hope you, everyone loved and enjoyed this. This knowledge was just so profound and so deep. I'd love to have you back and take this into a, a I know we can go as deep as, as deep as there is, because I, I know that the wealth of knowledge you have is just endless and boundless. So thank you all very, very much. Thank you all for listening. Uh, please stay tuned for our next podcast on June 5th. It's, a, it's on uh, research with a melatonin researcher. It's called Groundbreaking Research on Melatonin with Dr. Paula Witt. She's been researching melatonin for 25 years. Like you talked about, a good night's sleep. The, the, the benefits of a good night's sleep and the benefits of a full dose of melatonin are beyond what we would ever imagine. And you're going to hear that in that next podcast. Rod, thank you very much. We'll do this again. John, I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, did you like this video? Do you like our content here at Life Spa? You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash John DeYard right here and get this valuable content every week in your inbox. This recording is brought to you by Life Spa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at lifespa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.